untrodden peaks and unfrequented valleys section thirty six this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. untrodden peaks and unfrequented valleys a midsummer ramble through the dolomites by amelia b edwards chapter fourteen capril to botzen part three that night there came another thunderstorm followed by three days of bad weather during which we had more time than enough for inquiring into the curious trade of the place and seeing the people at their work for here as i have said is the capital of toyland we had never even heard of st ulrich till a few weeks ago and then but vaguely as a village where wooden toys and wayside christs were made and now we find that we have so to say been on intimate terms with the place from earliest infancy that remarkable animal on a little wheeled platform which we fondly took to represent a horseback with an eruption of scarlet discs upon his body and a mane and tail derived from snippings of ancient fur tippet he is of the purest grodnerthal breed those wooden jointed dolls of all sizes from babies half an inch in length to mothers of families two feet high whose complexions always came off when we washed their faces. They are the aborigines of the soil. Those delightful little organs with red pipes and spiky barrels, turned by the hardest-working doll we ever knew. Those boxes of landscape scenery, whose frizzly cone-shaped trees and red-roofed houses stood for faithful representations of Tempe and the Vales of Arcady. That Noah's Ark, a Tyrolean homestead in a boat, in which the animals were truer to nature than their live originals in the zoological gardens that monkey so evidently in the transition stage between man and ape that spends his life toppling over the end of a stick those rocking horses with an armchair fore and aft that dray with immovable barrels those wooden soldiers with supernaturally small waists and triangular noses all these, all the cheap, familiar, absurd treasures of your earliest childhood, and of mine, they all came, reader, from St. Ulrich, and they are coming from St. Ulrich to this day. They will keep coming when you and I are forgotten, for we are mere mortals, but those wooden warriors and those jointed dolls bear charmed lives, and renew forever their indestructible youth. The two largest wholesale warehouses in the village are those of Herr Perger, and of Messrs. Insum and Prinoth. They show their establishment with readiness and civility, and I do not know when I have seen any sight so odd and so entertaining. At Insum and Prinoth's alone we were taken through more than thirty large storerooms, and twelve of those were full of dolls, millions of them, large and small, painted and unpainted, in bins, in cases, on shelves, in parcels ready-packed for exportation. In one room, especially devoted to Lilliputians, an inch and a half in length, they were piled up in a disorderly heap, literally from floor to ceiling, and looked as if they had been shot out upon the floor by cartloads. Another room contained only horses. Two others were devoted to carts. One long corridor was stocked with nothing but wooden platforms to be fitted with horses by and by. Another room contained dolls' heads. The great, dusk attic at the top of the house was entirely fitted up with enormous bins, like a wine cellar, each bin heaped high with a separate kind of toy, all in plain wood waiting for the painter. The cellars were stocked with the same goods, painted and ready for sale. 
Now, the whole population of the place, men and women alike, being with few exceptions brought up to some branch of the trade, and beginning from the age of six or seven years, the work is always going on, and the dealers are always buying. It is calculated that, out of a population which, at the time of the last census, numbered only 3,493 souls, there are 2,000 carvers, that is to say nothing of painters and gilders. Some of these carvers and painters are artists, in the genuine sense of the word, others are mere human machines who make toys, as other human machines make matchboxes and matches. A smart doll-maker will turn out twenty dozen small-jointed dolls, one inch and a half in length, per diem. And of this sized doll alone, Messrs. Insum and Printeth buy thirty thousand a week the whole year round. The regular system is for the wholesale dealers to buy the goods direct from the carvers, to store them till they are wanted, and to only give them out for painting as the orders come in from London or elsewhere. Thus the carver's work is regular and unfailing, but the painter's, being dependent on demands from without, is more precarious. The warehouses of Herr Perger, though amply supplied with dolls and other toys, contain for the most part goods of a more artistic and valuable kind than those dealt in by Messrs. Insum and Printeth. All the studios in Europe are furnished with lay figures large and small from Herr Perger's stores, and even with model horses of elaborate construction. Here also, ranged solemnly all the length of dimly lighted passages, stand rows of beautiful saints, large as life, exquisitely colored, in robes richly patterned and relieved with gold. St. Cecilius, with little model organs, knightly St. Theodorus in glittering armor, grave, lovely St. Christophers with infant Christs upon their shoulders, St. Florians with their buckets, Madonnas crowned with stars, none like Mater Dolorosus, the Evangelists with their emblems, St. Peter with his keys, and a host of other saints, angels, and martyrs. In other corridors we find the same goodly company reproduced in all degrees of smallness. In other rooms we have Christs of all sizes and for all purposes, colored and uncolored, in ivory, ebony, in wood, for the benetier, for the oratory, for the church altar, for the wayside shrine. Some of these are perfect as works of art, faultlessly modeled, and in many cases only too well painted. One life-sized recumbent figure for a pieta was rendered with an elaborate truth, not to life, but to death, that was positively startling. I should be afraid to say how many rooms full of smaller Christs we passed through in going over the upper stories of Herr Perger's enormous house. They were there, at all events, by the hundreds of thousands, of all sizes, of all prices, of all degrees of finish. In the attics we saw bins after bins of crowns of thorns only. One day was devoted to going from house to house and seeing the people at their work. As hundreds do precisely the same things, and have been doing them all their lives, with no ideas beyond their own immediate branch, there was inevitable sameness about this part of the pilgrimage which it would be tedious to reproduce. I will, however, give one or two instances. In one house we found an old, old woman at work, Magdalena Paldoff by name. She carved cats, dogs, wolves, sheep, goats, and elephants. She has made these six animals her whole life long, and has no idea of how to cut anything else. She makes them in two sizes, and she turns out, as nearly as possible, a thousand of them every year. 
She has no model or drawing of any kind to work by, but goes on steadily, unerringly, using gouges of different sizes, and shaping out her cats, dogs, wolves, sheep, goats, and elephants, with an ease and an amount of truth to nature, that would be clever if it were not so utterly mechanical. Magdalena Paldoff learned from her mother how to carve these six animals, and her mother had learned in like manner from the grandmother. Magdalena has now taught the art to her own granddaughter, and so it will go on being transmitted for generations. In the adjoining house, Aloysius Senoner, a fine, stalwart, brown man in a blue blouse, carves large Christs for churches. We found him at work upon one of three-quarters life-size. The whole figure, except the arms, was in one solid block, fixed upon a kind of spit between two upright posts, so that he could turn it at his pleasure. It was yet all in the rough, half tree-trunk, half deity, with a strange, pathetic beauty already dawning out of the undeveloped features. It is a sight to see Herr Sonnener at work. He also has no model. His block is not even pointed, as it would be if he cut in marble. He has nothing to guide him, save his consummate knowledge, but he dashes at his work in a wonderful way, scooping out the wood in long flakes at every rapid stroke, and sending the fragments flying in every direction. But then, Alois Senoner is an artist. It takes him ten days to cut a figure of three-quarters life-size, and fifteen to execute one as large as life. For this last, the wood cost him fifteen florins, and his price for the complete figure is forty-five florins, about four pounds ten shillings English. In another house we found a whole family carving skulls and crossbones, for fixing at the bases of crucifixes. Not a cheerful branch of the profession. In other houses, families that carved rocking horses, dolls, and all the toys previously named. In others, families of painters. The ordinary toys are chiefly painted by women. In one house we found about a dozen girls painting gray horses with black points. In another house they painted only red horses with white points. It is a separate branch of the trade to paint the saddles and headgear. A good hand will paint twelve dozen horses a day, each horse being about one foot in length, and for these she is paid fifty-five soli, or about two shillings and threepence English. I have dwelt at some length on the details of this curious trade, for the reason that, although it is practiced in so remote a place and in so traditional a way, it yet supplies a large slice of the world with the products of its industry. The art is said to have been introduced into the valley at the beginning of the last century, no doubt on account of the inexhaustible supply of arolas or penis sembra yielded by the forest of the Grodner Thal, the wood of which is peculiarly adapted for cheap carving, being very white, fine grain, and firmed, yet soft and easy to work. The people of St. Ulrich have lately restored and decorated their principal church, which is now the handsomest in South Tyrol. The stone carving and external decorations have been restored by Herr Pleisoventura of Brixen, and the painted windows are by Nykasser of Innsbruck. The polychrome decorations are by Herr Part of St. Ulrich. The large wooden statues are by Herr Mogneck, also of St. Ulrich, and the smaller figures on the altars and pulpit, as well as the wood sculpture generally, are all by local artists. Color and gilding have of course been lavishly bestowed on every part of the interior, 
but the general effect is rich and harmonious, and not in the least overcharged. Above the high altar hangs an excellent copy of the famous Florentine Madonna of Cimabue. The dialect of the Grodner Thal, called the Latin tongue, is supposed to be directly derived from the original Latin at some date contemporary with the period of Roman rule. It differs widely from all existing dialects of the modern Italian, and though in some points closely resembling the Raito Romanche of the Grisons and the Lower Romanese of the Engadine, it is yet, we are told, so distinctly separated from both by well-marked differences, both grammatical and lexicographical, as to indicate kinship rather than identity of stock. Those, however, who admit with Stubb the unity of the Ration and Etruscan languages, and who agree with Niebuhr in believing the Rations of these Alps to have been the original Etruscan stock, will assign a still remoter origin to this singular fragment of an ancient tongue. It certainly seems more reasonable to suppose that the tide of emigration flowed down originally from the mountains to the plains, rather than that the aboriginal dwellers in the fertile flats of Lombardy should have colonized these comparatively barren alpine fastnesses. This view, the writer ventures to think, receives strong confirmation from the fact that a large number of sepulchre bronzes, distinctly Etruscan in character, have been discovered at various times within the last twenty-five years in the immediate neighborhood of St. Ulrich. These objects, collected and intelligently arranged by Herr Perger, may be seen in his showroom. They fill two cabinets, and comprise the usual articles discovered in graves of a very early date, such as bracelets, rings, fibulae, torques, earrings, weapons, etc., Philologists may be interested in knowing that there exists a curious book on the Grodner Thal and its language, with a grammar and vocabulary of the same, by Don Joseph Vian, a native of the Fassa Thal, and present Paroco of St. Ulrich. From St. Ulrich to the Sicer Alp, the way leads up through a wooded ravine known as the Puffler Gorge. Weary of waiting longer for the weather, we start at last on a somewhat doubtful morning, and find the paths wet and slippery, and the mountain streams all turbid from the rain of the last three days. Neat homesteads decorated with frescoed saints and madonnas, and surrounded like English cottages with gardens full of beehives and flowers, are thickly scattered over the lower slopes towards St. Ulrich. These gradually diminish in number as we ascend the gorge, and after the little lonely church and hamlet of San Pietro cease altogether. End of section 36